Let me ask you to join with me in taking your Bibles and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 29. 1 Samuel 29. What happens when we get trapped as a result of our distrust of God and our human scheming? These kinds of things can happen to us as fallen human beings and even as sinful Christians. Take, for example, a person's public image. Suppose there's a person who had worked for years to make, make people think that he was a certain way so that people would kind of stay out of his personal business where he was one way at home but completely different, let's say, at church. And that false image worked for a while. That man continued on fooling people into thinking what he really was like, but, but the two-faced nature of the man was about to be exposed by, by someone in his family, let's say his brother, who couldn't handle it anymore. The fact that he's one way in front of them and in a different way when he's at home. And this brother of this Christian was going to tell the church about his sin. Well, at this point, the two-faced person has gotten into a position where his scheming has pushed him to the edge of the cliff and he has no way out. In 1 Samuel 27, we have a story that's recorded about David where he schemes his way into his own personal protection, which actually makes matters worse. David, remember, wanted to stay away from Saul and and his pursuit of him. Saul had been hunting him for the past several months and probably years. And, And David came to a point where he temporarily lapsed in his judgment and stopped relying on God to protect him as he had promised. And instead, David turned to his own scheming. And amazingly, when he sought safety in a, in a way that was not something that God had intended or something that God had desired, his plan actually worked. So he's trying to receive protection from his enemy and he seeks it without using God as a God-excluded pursuit of safety and it actually worked. He found himself in a Philistine city, Gath, among his enemies And they even gave him some land, Ziklag, for him and his men and their families to to occupy. Well, now David is in this position where he's protected, but he's also in a position where he's going to have to make a choice. Because the Philistine king wants to go to battle, Achish. He wants to go to battle against Israel, who David supposedly has been fighting against. Instead of David attacking those people, his own people, Israel, remember he attacked their enemies and killed them all so that none of them could come back. And so David's plan, his God-excluded plan for safety, actually worked. He received the protection that he wanted. King Saul stopped chasing him. He He found some solace in this Philistine king. And so the king says, you know what? You've been attacking Israel. Now it's time for us all to do it. Let's just take them out. And so we're going to go into battle. David, you and your men are coming with me. You're going to fight with me, right? And David's response in chapter 28 is, you will see what I will do. In other words, he leaves it ambiguous. And the rest of chapter 28, as we saw last time, was a record of a flashback 
something that happened a little bit earlier, of Saul seeking the spirit of Samuel. But now the story picks back up where it had left off. It was at this climax. David was about to to go into battle with the Philistines against his own people, Israel, and he had to make a choice. Is he actually going to fight against his own people? Is he going to kill the Lord's anointed and the chosen people of God? Or is he going to not fight and instead be exposed as a fraud and a con artist? And then the Philistines would just do with him as they pleased. Thousands of lives would be put in jeopardy either way. He had to make a choice, though. And that's where we find ourselves. That, that The story kind of climaxed at the beginning of chapter 28, and then there's kind of this flashback of Saul, and we're wondering what's happening. What's happening with David? What's, how's he going to get out of this situation? Well, we have the answer here in chapter 29. So follow along with me as I read, beginning in verse 1. This is the word of God. Now the Philistines gathered together all their armies to Aphek, while the Israelites were camping by the spring, which is in Jezreel. And the lords of the Philistines were proceeding on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were proceeding on in the rear with Achish. Then the commanders of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, the king of Israel, who has been with me these days, or rather these years? And I have found no fault in him from the day he deserted me until this day. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Make the man go back, that he may return to his place where you have assigned him, and do not let him go down to battle with us, or in the battle he may become an adversary to us. For with, with what could this man make himself acceptable to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of these men? Is this not David of whom they sing in the dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands? Then Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been upright, and you're going out and you're coming in with me, and the army are pleasing in my sight. For I have not found evil in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, you are not pleasing in the sight of the Lord's. Now therefore return and go in peace, that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. David said to Achish, But what have I done? And what have you found in your servant from the day when I came before you to this day, that I might not go and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? But Achish replied to David, I know that you are pleasing in my sight, like an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, He must not go up with us to the battle. Now then arise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who have come with you, and as soon as you, you have arisen early in the morning and have light, depart. So David arose early, he and his men, to depart in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. And the Philistines went up to Jezreel. The underlying question that this passage answers is... Let's see, there we go. How will... David be rescued from the consequences of his God-excluded schemes. That's the question that we wanted to know at the end, at the beginning of chapter 28, the end of chapter 27. How is David going to be rescued from this situation? He has pursued safety to the exclusion of God through his own schemes, and now he's really in a pickle. How is he going to get out? 
How is he going to get out alive? How is he going to get out with his, his army's lives? How is he going to get out with the people who live in southern Israel? How is he going to get out with them being alive? How is he going to be rescued from the consequences of his God-excluded schemes? Well, in verses 1-5, through you see that David is rescued by the suspicion of the Philistine commanders. Verses 1-5, through he's rescued by or because of the suspicion of the Philistine commanders. The Philistines prepare to fight against Israel. In verses 1 and 2, they go to Aphek. They, they all join together. Aphek is a city that's 24 miles north of Gath. So if you think kind of close to the Sea of Galilee, uh, towards the Mediterranean Sea a little bit, on the, on the east side, sorry, the, the west side of the Jordan River, that's, that's where Aphek is. It's 24 miles north of Gath. So it would have taken the Philistines about two days to get there. They gather all their forces. Israel is starting to gather their forces because they know the Philistines are coming. However, David's coming from a different place. He's not coming from Gath. Remember, they had their own land down in Ziklag. They wanted to be away from the Philistines so that they could have a little bit of protection, a little breathing room, so that the Philistines are not looking over their shoulder constantly. And so Achish said, you know what, you can have Ziklag. That's your city. Well, Ziklag's another 24 miles south of Gath, so they had to actually travel 50 miles, maybe three or four days to get there. And as they arrive, uh, the Philistines start to put their troops in battle array, ready to separate them into hundreds and thousands, as it says there in the first couple verses of chapter 29. And then David shows up with his men, and he's at the back of the battle array, and the Philistine military commanders don't want. Oops, I guess I need to stay there. Philistine military commanders don't want David and his men fighting with them. Now we need to answer first: Who are these military commanders? Who are these Philistine military commanders? Look at verse three. Then the commanders of the Philistines said, "What are these Hebrews doing here? These military commanders are probably the five kings, just like we have. Uh, our president is the commander in chief." of our military, the same thing would be true likely in the Philistine armies. The, the, the commander-in-chief, the military commander, would be the king of each one of these cities. There are five Philistine cities, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Ekron, Gaza, or Gaza, and then Gath. And of course, the king of Gath, he's all in favor of David coming and joining them. He's the one who told them to do that. But apparently the other four kings of the other four cities see him and say, wait a second, what is he doing here? And Achish responds by defending him in verse 3. At the end of the verse it says, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, the king of Israel, who has been with me these days, or rather these years, and I found no fault in him from the day he deserted uh, me to this day? David's been loyal to me for 16 months. I've, I've watched him very closely. He's done battle for me. He's given me no reason to distrust him. And so we can trust him. He's going to be fine. He's going to be on our side. Well, the four military commanders are not convinced in verse 4. They, they, they recognize that this is the same man who, remember, feigned madness in order to be delivered in chapter 20. He pretended like he was insane. He, remember the, the, uh, the drool coming down his, his beard? Well, what if he's feigning loyalty now in order to, to destroy the Philistines? What if he's pretending 
to be loyal to King Achish in order to destroy the Philistines. And so they're thinking, what if we start into battle, the Philistine kings, and, and we end up in the middle, right? On one side, we're trying to attack Israel, so they're attacking, we're attacking each other, and behind us is David and his men. What happens if they turn on us in the middle of the battle? Do you know where we have to turn? And the answer is nowhere. We will be surrounded on every side by Israel. And, and that's why they say David will become our adversary at the end of verse 4. And then they go on to say, For with what could this man make himself acceptable to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of these men? So if, if he were pretending here, how would he want to serve his king, King Saul? How would he do that? Would he not do that with the heads of these Philistines? And so what if David, Achish, what if David is performing a long con on you? And this is the time when he's going to strike. I mean, it would be the equivalent of, of a registered Democrat running as a Republican nominee. I mean, what could possibly go wrong, right? This is David. He, he's... he's he is a Jew, a Hebrew from birth. And all of a sudden, for these last 16 months, he happens to be on the Philistine side. Amazing. What could possibly go wrong? David has spent his whole military life fighting against Philistines. The Philistine commanders recognize this. Remember, 1 Samuel 17 was no small victory that David had. David and who did he fight? Goliath. Goliath of what city? Gath, Achish's city. They all knew this. All the rest of the Philistines knew this. Philistine lost a great battle on that day. In 1 Samuel 18, in order to, in order to receive Michael as his wife, remember King Saul said, go and get me a hundred Philistine men. Kill them. And David killed two hundred. And the Philistine commanders were a part of that battle. They knew about that battle, according to chapter 18, verse 30. In chapter 19, verse 8, there was a great slaughter that David was a part of. In chapter 20, David tried to find safety in Gath and pretended to be mad. And then there's this song that was written about David that further proved that these Philistine kings were right. David was not on their side. Saul, look at that at the end of verse 5. Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Isn't this the song that we constantly hear that we can't stand? This is the guy that's in the song. That's who they wrote it about. And yet, all of a sudden, his recent history suggests that he has somehow flipped on Israel. That he has become Israel's enemy. But, but here's the thing the commanders are saying. What if he hasn't? What if he hasn't flipped on Israel and he's actually still on their side? And the reality is that everything that Achish thinks is true about David is actually false. Because David has been deceiving Achish for the past 16 months. Achish thought David was fighting against Israel and for the Philistines, but actually he was fighting with Israel by killing some of the enemies that were in Israel's territory. And to top that off, David also left out one little detail in the interview process. 
David is the rightful heir to the throne of Israel. He's already been anointed. He knows that he's going to be the king. Why would he ever go against his own people? So the four commanders are actually wisely perceptive. They are actually right. David is the enemy. The problem is they can't prove it yet. But they will not put themselves into a place of vulnerability where they have Israel on one side and Israel on the other side. Sandwiched between the two great military fighters of Israel, Saul and David. Further proof of David's enmity with the Philistines is in the larger context. Right? We know more to the story that David actually is so loyal to Israel that he has not destroyed their king even though he's the rightful heir. Two times he passed on killing Saul when he very easily could have. So, number one, David is rescued because of the suspicion of the Philistine commanders. Number two, David is sent away with a commendation. He's sent away with a commendation by the Philistine king in verses 6 through 11. Achish is saddened to have to break the news to David that he can't fight in battle. David's a warrior. He likes to fight. He likes to, to be in battles. He likes military strategy. He likes to win. But as Achish talks to David, he's not convinced that the other, command, the, the other commanders are right about him. And Achish still trusts David. If he believed the other commanders, if he, if he followed their logic, then David would be in deep trouble. He would be executed, likely, along with his men and their families. Look at verse 6. And Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been upright, and you are going out, and you are coming in with me, and the army are pleasing in my sight, for I have not found evil in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, you are not pleasing in the sight of the Lord's, the Philistine commanders. Now therefore return and go in peace, that you may not displease the commanders of the Philistines. So think about David's situation. How is David going to be rescued from his God-excluded pursuit his scheming of safety, for safety. How is he going to be rescued? And the answer is right here in verses 1-7. through seven. He's going to be rescued by these Philistine commanders who see right through his plan. And so imagine where David is now when he hears the news because he's probably um, strategizing at this point in the back of the battle thinking, okay, when are we going to engage in battle? When are we going to pull back? When are we going to attack the Philistines? We've got to do something. What are we going to do? And now Achish gives him an out, doesn't he? He says, David, you're honorably discharged from this battle. I, I think you're a great guy. You have been faithful to me all these months. But you have to go back to your home. You have to go back to Ziklag. I'm sorry. And so we expect David to kind of do an internal... But notice verse 8, he acts frustrated at the news. David said to Achish, What have I done? And what have you found in your servant from the day when I came before you to this day that I may not go and fight against the enemies? What have I done? you kidding me? I can't fight in this battle? I've been faithful to you. What has there been in my history that would exclude me from fighting? So he acts like it's terrible news. Achish reaffirms his confidence in David in verses 9 and 10. 
Achish replied to David, I know that you're pleasing in my sight like an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, He must not go up with us to the battle. Now then, arise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who have come with you, and as soon as you have risen early in the morning and have light, depart. Achish is confident that David is loyal to him. But as we know, Achish was badly mistaken. David had been deceiving Achish for 16 months. Listen to Robert Burgeon on this. He makes an interesting comment about David's relationship with the two kings, Achish and Saul. He says, Achish thought David was his loyal friend when in fact David was a conniving enemy. Saul thought that David was a conniving enemy when in fact he was a loyal friend. I mean, this is how David acted in his own pursuit of safety. He, he, he treated this Philistine enemy as if he were his friend. So he gets this honorable discharge, and then in verse 11 he heads back to Ziklag. Again, probably a three or four day journey, about 50 miles. And the Philistines head north for their battle. A couple, probably about 20 miles to Jezreel. Another two day trip for them to attack Israel. So what is going on here? We might look at this story and think, well, what's the big deal? I mean, David gets out of a potentially damaging situation. How lucky of him, right? I mean, it just kind of was coincidental. But I think that the underlying story here is that God is working behind the scenes to settle a dilemma dilemma that would have destroyed David, either by the counterattack of the Philistines or through his betrayal of his own people, him killing God's chosen people and, and perhaps God's anointed. God's actually working behind the scenes to, to rescue David from his own schemes. So here's what we learn. I saved the theme for the end. All right, here it is. Even when our God-excluded schemes get us into deep trouble, the Lord is still there to rescue us. Even when our God-excluded schemes get us into deep trouble, trouble, the Lord is still there to rescue us. This is the nature of our God. He is constantly pursuing us, even when we turn away from Him, even when we pursue safety through our own means that exclude God, even despite our manipulation. Do you remember the story of Jacob and Laban in Genesis 30? Jacob had married his two daughters and wanted to leave Laban and take his family and settle down somewhere on his own. But Laban knew that the reason that he had prospered was because Jacob was there. And so he begged Jacob to stay. And Jacob said, I'll stay for six more months on one condition. That you have to give me all the speckled and spotted sheep and goats. Uh, Sorry, not six more months, six more years. I'll stay for six more years. If you give me all the speckled and spotted sheep and goats. But there's, Laban agreed to the deal, but there's one catch. Laban decided that in order to make this even more difficult on David, he would start out, David would start out with only pure colored sheep. So what he did was in the middle of the night, before this, after they, they made this agreement, he took, Laban took all the speckled and spotted sheep and had his shepherds take them on a three-day journey so they had a head start. 
So that Jacob now, if he's going to get, gain a flock of his own, he's going to have to do it some other way than starting with a nice core. So Jacob had his work cut out for him. The only way that he was going to get some of his own was from these pure colored sheep and goats actually producing some speckled and spotted ones. They would have to have some markings after they were born or or when they were born. And so Jacob came up with a scheme. I got an idea. I'll come I'll follow the pagan understanding which is that if you put some kind of stick in front of their watering trough that is stripped of its bark when they see these kind of bright colors then it will that when they mate it will produce a spotted embryo. This was his idea. Eventually it would bring about a spotted sheep or goat. And so David did it. He put the stripped bark in front of the stronger looking sheep. He didn't want to grow a flock that was a bunch of weaklings. So he did that whenever they were at the trough. He would put that, that stripped bark there. And do you know what happened? It worked exactly as he planned. But the problem with Jacob's understanding is that those animals were not a product of his superstitious practices. The reason that he had a large number of strong speckled and spotted sheep at the end of that six-year period was not because of his superstitious scheming. It was a result of God's good pleasure. And the reason I know that is because God came to Jacob in a dream and He said, Jacob, you will have speckled and spotted sheep and it will be a large flock and a healthy flock. In other words, God miraculously reversed the dominance of the genetic structure in the males in order to cause them to produce the right type of offspring that Jacob needed. And Jacob would later acknowledge that it was God who did that. But he he went ahead with his scheme anyway. And the truth is that God often tolerates our schemes. And yet, He works apart from them and sometimes through them. That is... God accomplishes His purposes. And listen to this. Even when we fail to trust Him. God can accomplish whatever He wants even when we exclude Him and move on in our own direction. Another example of people using superstition to bring about a desired result was in the previous chapter in Genesis. Genesis chapter... 29, I think it is, where Leah wanted to get pregnant. It had been a long time since she had. She had initially uh, been pregnant and had several sons. But then there was a, a time of barrenness for her. And so she followed the pagan superstition that if she used mandrakes, it would help her to conceive. And in fact, she actually did conceive. But the text says there and Genesis that God was the one who caused her to conceive. So she goes through all these manipulations, these superstitious ideas. So the point is that we can go through all these different means of of trying to make things happen, to manipulate things exactly how they want, and that actually might work. Have you ever heard of an Indian rain dance? What's going on there, right? Indians are dancing around and asking for the spirits to send the rain for them. Let me ask you a question. 
Do they ever get rain following one of their dances? What do you think? Probably. I would think so. But was it because of the rain dance that the rain came? No, it was because God causes the rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous, and even when they think they're doing it by their own means. God accomplishes His purposes. So here's the point of application for us. We often employ our own schemes to bring about a desired result. And then we get to a place where we have kind of backed ourselves into a corner. And we need to be rescued from our own schemes. Sometimes we know we need to be rescued. Other times we don't even know how bad we have put ourselves in a difficult spot. And yet what I can assure you is that all the time God is working behind, behind the scenes to overcome human maneuvers in order to bring about not your desired purpose through your scheming, but His desired purpose in a way that would bring glory to Him. God often rescues us from the schemes that when we exclude Him, He's working behind the scenes to do that. Let me leave you with three implications from this truth that God rescues His people even when we damage ourselves through God-excluded means. Implication number one. The Lord is faithful to His promises despite our human scheming. Here's what we can take to the bank. Here's what we can be confident in. The Lord will be faithful to His promises. Even in spite of our human scheming. We may scheme and work in order to prosper, or in David's case, in order to be protected. And we may feel as if all of our effort is a result of us. But if we don't recognize it at the time of our rescue, I think as believers we will recognize it later and acknowledge that our prosperity didn't come from our human scheming. Rather, it came from God. Has that ever happened to you? You went through a situation thinking that you rescued yourself because of some great act that you had done only to realize later that God was the one who was leading you all the way. The Lord is faithful to His promises despite our human scheming. Number two, God's deliverance often comes very quietly. God's deliverance often comes very quietly. This is one of the amazing things about God. I was reading through some quotations from the letters of C.S. Lewis. And he was remarking about how he hated to be self-promoting in his books. A guy with such a great ability to write. He wrote the Narnia series, a number of other uh, screw tape letters, a number of other great books. And he hated to be self-promoting. You know these people? You know, they're constantly posting things on the Internet. Hey, read my book. You know, look how, how high my book got on the sales list and things like that. C.S. Lewis was not that way. He used to complain. People used to complain about it and say, you know, you could, you could just be so much more effective. You could have such a wider um, uh, spread or a reach to people if you'd just be a self-promoter. But Lewis wanted nothing to do with it. Listen to this letter from his fa- or to his father. On June 29, 1919, 
He says, my friends tell me that I am at a disadvantage for literary success because I lack, I lack the gift of self-advertisement. My only reply, he says to his father, not expressed aloud, is thank heaven. In other words, I'm glad they recognize that I'm not a self-promoter because I'm trying not to be a self-promoter. And then this is a letter to his brother two years later on July 1st. He says, the trouble about God is that he is like a person who never acknowledges one's letters. And so in time, one comes to the, to the conclusion either that God does not exist or that you have, got, you have got the address wrong. Isn't that true? People get the conclusion about God all wrong because God's not a self-promoter like we would expect Him to be. People wrongly think that if God really is who He said He is, then He would make it more obvious. I mean, why would God not just make a big scene whenever He wants to enter into a situation? Why would He not show His great power and deliverance and show once and for all, like in this situation, that He is the God of Israel and do some spectacular deliverance here of David? I mean, could not God have done this another way? Could not God have rescued David loudly instead of silently? Could he, could he not have spectacularly delivered David and his men as he's done in other places? You see, the Philistines had no clue that God was actually working behind the scenes to deliver David from disaster. But not only that, I think David's own men didn't perceive that it was God who was delivering him. And finally, we readers might not pick up the clue that God is actually behind it all. We might think, oh yeah, it's just a kind of a stroke of luck. But I can assure you that the only reason that David was rescued was because God was working on his behalf behind the scenes. And isn't that how God works today? Can you not think of specific times in your life when God rescued you quietly? Maybe not in a thunderstorm or a catastrophe that fell on your enemy, but in a way that non-Christians would look at and say, hmm, I was kind of lucky. Wow, that cancer was there and now it's gone. Wow, they had this financial need and someone else came not knowing about it and came just at the right time. That's kind of coincidental. You know what God's doing? Sitting back there quietly, not saying anything, saying, hey, hey, wait a second, that's me. God often delivers us from our own scheming, and He often does it quietly. Now, that's not always how He does it. God delivers spectacularly in other cases, and that doesn't make Him proud like it would for us. Because there's no higher power, there's no greater being than, than God. And so he's completely right to make much of himself. But God often does it quietly, and people are often mis misunderstand, including us believers. What's going on? And, and sometimes we attribute to luck or some kind of chance something that should be attributed to God, like, like this rescue of David here. Third implication is that God can deliver through unlikely means. 
God can deliver through unlikely means. Here, he delivers David through the Philistine commanders and their suspicion of him. I mean, this is not how we would have written up the story. If we stop at the, the, the beginning of chapter 28 and say, okay, how is David going to get delivered from the situation? He's either going to get found out by the Philistines or he's going to have to attack his own people, but how is he going to get out of this? He's just kind of sneak away. And here we have these Philistine commanders saying, you guys don't fit here. We don't trust you. God often delivers through unlikely Means. And this should not be surprising to you, should it? Because God can use whomever He wants to deliver us, even the unrighteous. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord and He turns it whatever way He wishes. Proverbs 21.1 Real victory does not come through human scheming or reliance on our own wisdom. Real victory comes by faith and the sovereign God who rules over all, and we can trust Him. He is on our side, constantly pursuing us, even when we scheme our way into a corner, uh, to the edge of a cliff, about to be pushed off. How are we going to get out of this? God comes along and has been working all along to rescue us and to save us from ourselves and our scheming. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled once again to be reminded about your sovereign rule over all things and how often we miss what you're doing. And often attributed to other things, you know, stars were aligned, kind of things fell into place, just kind of a chance. But Lord, there is no chance. In a universe that is sovereignly controlled by you, everything down to the casting of lots, the rolling of dice, the flipping of a coin, is all determined by you. And so, Lord, when we are rescued from a situation, it's not because of, of a chance or some kind of manipulation or scheming that we did on our part. Lord, you are faithfully working for your purposes, sometimes even in spite of our scheming. And, Lord, we are ashamed that we would turn away from You when You have been found to be so faithful, not just in history, not just in the Old Testament and New Testament, but in our lives we've seen You to be faithful, and yet we still have times like Jacob and like David when we can't figure out any other way that we're going to get out. And, and we have a lapse, and we come up with our own maneuvering to get out of a situation. And often what we do is we bring about greater danger, greater threats. And some, for some reason, God, You are merciful to us and You rescue us from ourselves. And Lord, You often do it quietly so that we could actually go through our lives and think, hmm, that was interesting how I got out of that. And yet when we give careful reflection to it like we have on this passage, we have to admit that You were behind it all. You lovingly cared for us and led us all the way. So, Lord, there's nothing that we can boast in except in Your power and Your victory. Lord, we boast most of all in, in the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the cross that has brought us to salvation. 
that has turned us away from our sins and to you to be able to be a part of your family both now and eternally. Lord, would you strengthen our resolve tonight to trust you more, to do like David did in a number of other places when his world was crashing in all around him. He actually did trust in you. He, he passed up on opportunities to scheme and to maneuver and he trusted in your promises, trusted in your work. Lord, help us to, to follow that kind of example and to enjoy the fruit of sowing a seed of faith and trust so that we can harvest righteousness and joy and the love that comes from knowing that you are leading us all the way. Lord, lead us till the end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.